Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for your goodness, your grace and kindness in making yourself known. Thank you for your precious word, your written word, uh, through which you've revealed yourself uh, most fully in the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, our Lord Jesus. And Father, as we come, look at Psalm 22, this uh, wonderful uh, Psalm uh, of David. Uh, and as we see how it all points to Christ, we uh, pray that you would uh, encourage our hearts and may we go away knowing something uh, more about you and, and live lives for your glory. Uh, we pray that you would soften our hearts by your spirit to hear what you have for us today. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. So our first reading today from uh, Psalm 22. For the director of music to the tune of The Doe of the Morning, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you have brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, 
but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. And our second reading is from Matthew 27. The soldiers mock Jesus. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Well, thanks again so much for having me uh, here with you at Victor Harbour today. It really is a great privilege to join with you and open God's Word with you. Speaking of keeping God's Word open, can I encourage you to stick a bookmark or a finger in that reading in Matthew if you've had it open and flick back to Psalm 22 where we'll spend most of our time together. Um, Before we get going, a really brief word of introduction. Some of us might be less familiar with reading the Psalms and as we read this first reading uh, so helpfully this morning, thank you, Uh, It might have been that it was actually a little bit hard to get into. We kind of, we used to thinking of, well, most commonly we read stories, they they tell us a story and this didn't seem to be telling us a story. We might be used to the Bible as giving instructions for life and there didn't seem to be a whole lot of instruction going on here. Um, It doesn't even really seem to be setting out in a very structured way who God is and what he's like. And that's because it's a prayer. Actually, it's a prayer that was put to music to the tune of the Doe of the Morning, if we knew what that was. Um, But it's a prayer, words written to God, probably originally written by King David, uh, the greatest king of Israel, the king chosen by God to rule over his people and through whom he would ultimately send his greatest king as one of his great-great-great-great-great-grandsons. They're words to God, Uh, But as part of the Bible, it isn't just a word to God, it is also God's word to us. Uh, So, an ancient prayer, written about a thousand years before Jesus, uh, helps us to understand who God is, his character, and how he invites us to interact with him as we pray. And so I hope, as we're about to turn into a new year, on the cusp of a new year, these words from God would help inform our thinking about how we speak to God in our own prayers in the year to come. And with that introduction, I have a simple question for you. Do you pray plastic surgery prayers? Let me answer it for you. You probably do. But the question again, do you pray plastic surgery prayers? I'm sure you know the kind of prayers that I mean are prayers that have everything sounding just right, prayers that have already had the nip and the tuck, the wobbly bits trimmed away, Uh, they've been plumped and primped and things are just right before we actually open our our mouths and speak to God. You know, all those wobbly bits tidied up, the unanswered questions, well, I guess we just need to put them to one side, The, the deep hurts, we'll gloss over that, those feelings of pain or or rejection, we just need to suppress them for the moment. I'm sure many of us have that, the internal dialogue that I know I have at times, you know, the the train of thought that says I'm feeling pretty down at the moment, life uh, is pretty tough, but I'm not sure that that's really the state of mind that I need to be in when I pray. I kind of figure I need to get this sorted out because after all it is the creator of the universe that I'm coming to so I need to get things straight before I actually speak to him. And yet one thing is very clear as we come to Psalm 22 that this is no plastic surgery prayer. Uh, this is raw and real. This is, this is a prayer that comes from a mess, a chaos. This is a prayer that comes from a heart of a man wrestling with God in the midst of troubled times. Uh, The outline on your leaflet uh, that you received at the door gives you some idea of where we're headed, uh, if that's helpful for you. 
And you can see that this psalm kind of breaks into three main blocks. And the first one begins with the tension that David, as he writes this prayer, is experiencing between, between life as he knows it and God as he knows him. The tension between his experience and his knowledge of God. And he really dives in, doesn't he? Right from the outset, in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Now, depending on your personality type, some of you have already pulled out your mental theological textbook and you're asking all kinds of questions. Ooh, has God actually forsaken David? Does God do that kind of thing? Would it be different for New Testament believers now that we are? And, and right away we've recognised our problem, or at least I hope we start to see it. Here is David pouring out his heart before the Lord and we pull out our textbook to see whether he's got his theology straight. And that's exactly our problem. We're trying to get the questions all neat and tidy before we start praying. Instead, David just dives in headlong and brings his heart before God. And we see how he's feeling in the verses that follow. Verse 2, My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. It's very clear that David is feeling on his own. Uh, like God is not listening. But he doesn't let that despair turn him in on himself or, or kind of bury himself in his misery. Actually, no, he brings his despair and he, he lays it before God. He comes to God with it. And what we see in the verses that follow is actually this wonderful this dance between his experience and his knowledge of God. Did you see, as we read through there, how he bounced between the two? I mean, right there uh, in verse uh, 3 through 5, he, he now actually talks about who God is and what he's done, enthroned as the Holy One, the one Israel praises, the one that his ancestors have prayed to and the one who was faithful to them when they prayed. And then he returns, verse 6, and yet this is how I feel, like a worm, despised, insignificant, unwanted, and yet this is what I know of you. You are God, and this time it's personal, the one who created me, sustains me. So by the time we get to verse 10, we, we don't know exactly what's going on for David, but we do know how he feels. We know something of the despair that he's experiencing, but we also know that as he feels it, as he experiences it, he holds it up against what he knows to be true of God. So having seen how David feels, well, what does he ask for? Really, that's the next block from verse 11 through 21. We know it's a block because there are two bookends to it. In verse 11, we see David's simple request, do not be far from me. And we know it's important to him because he repeats it. In verse 19 through 21, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me, rescue me, save me. And they're the bookends. They're his simple request. Do not be far from me. If they're the bookends, well, kind of the next bit inside, David is saying, I, I want you near me because 
This is the picture that I see. And he paints the picture in full colour for us, doesn't he? Uh, Verse 12, he looks around and he sees bulls of Bashan. We go, bulls of Bashan, what's with that? The best cattle raising district for miles around. These are the fattest, fittest, angriest bulls that David would know. An image of overwhelming power. Verse 13, roaring lions that kill. Verse 16, dogs that scavenge the scraps. David looks around him and the opposition looks terrifying. But within the centre of those bookends of his request, Lord, do not be far from me, he paints another picture, a self-portrait. It's there in verses 14 to 15 and it's a desperate image. Poured out like water, heart melting like wax. He's, He's painting the picture of a dehydrated victim of a famine. Someone so weak they can't even swat the flies let alone defend themselves against their enemies. And at the heart of it, his simple request is that God would be near him. You see, unlike our plastic surgery prayers, David doesn't gloss over the reality of his experience. He paints it in technicolour. He uses the images that come to mind for him of, of suffering and hardship. And in doing so, He provides us a model of acknowledging our own pain, our own suffering, our chaos, our messy lives, our questions, and bringing it all before God in its raw state. Not primped and tucked and tidy, but raw and real and honest. And we learn a lot about prayer in this. We learn a lot about God, that he invites us to lament That's not a word that many of us use in everyday conversation. Some of us probably have never heard it. Lament is really just calling it like it is and then longing for it to be how it should be. And God invites us to lament. It's really vivid language that David's used here and I think for most of us we're a little bit sort of just a bit bit sorted and a bit neat and tidy and How was your day? Oh, it's fine. Really, it was fantastic, but it was fine. How are you? I'm fine. Really, I'm terrible, but I'm fine. Yeah, we're all middle of the road and David's talking about lions and bulls and heart melting like wax. This just seems a bit over the top. But this is lament that calls it like it is and lays it before God and God invites it. But see, I I think we tend to worry about naming our feelings because... In a, in a sort of a weird kind of way, we think that if we, if we really name our feelings, then we make them true. You see, if we tend to worry that if we really say our hardship for what it is, then well, maybe somehow we've, we've made it true, that's what, that's what it is. Our culture's understanding of truth is so based on our feelings that at times we're not sure quite what to do with our feelings, we... Our thinking is that if feelings determine truth, then to be raw and real about them means that we've somehow defined our reality by them. So we tend to shy away from naming them. We're trying to keep it all together, either to convince other people that we've got it sorted, maybe to convince ourselves that we've got it sorted, maybe even trying to convince God that we've got it sorted. But David shows us here that he knows that there is often 
a massive disconnect between the way we feel and what is really going on. To see, to put it another way, David's theology, his knowledge of God is primarily biblical, not experiential. Let me say it again. David's knowledge of God, his theology, is primarily biblical, not experiential. His knowledge of God is based on God's revelation through his word. And God's word teaches us that God is trustworthy, that that trust in God leads to deliverance by God. And David allows his theology to interpret his experience rather than presuming that his experience will inform his theology. His feelings are real. I have no doubt that he was facing incredible rejection, desperate times, a real sense of helplessness and vulnerability. We know from other parts of the Bible that David suffered real and genuine opposition. His feelings are real, but his theology, his knowledge of God, that's not shaped on the fly, just on the basis of how life is going. His theology isn't just defined by the words of others as they mock and scorn. His knowledge of God isn't shaped by his present hardship and the feeling that God is far away or disinterested. No, his theology is based on what God has made known through his word. As he's recorded for us, his work in history, speaking through his prophets. So as much as our culture grounds its concept of truth on our feelings, we need instead to look at God's truth revealed in his word and allow that to interpret our experience And and that actually then frees us to bring that experience before God and say, this is how it feels and I don't know what to do with it, but I know that you do and I long for you to be with me in it. That's what it is to live by faith. And I wonder, this year, how would your prayers look if you got real with God? If you really laid it out before him? And if you stripped back the requests to mirror David's simple request, Lord, do not be far from me. Because one of the wonderful things of Psalm 22 is it shows us that we can do this with incredible confidence. That really shines through in the final block of this psalm. Uh, If you flick the page to page 548, it is just line after line expressing confidence in God. You see, in the midst of the mess, David looks forward with incredible assurance of the God who he prays to. In verse 22, he anticipates, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. And he's so confident that God will act that He's even shifted to the past tense by verse 24. He has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted afflicted one. It is as good as done. And, And the psalm just overflows with confidence that the God who he prays to, the God who he feels is absent, no, this is the God who will act, to the point that he concludes this psalm with those wonderful words that, He anticipates, 
a whole crowd of people acknowledging the goodness and the faithfulness of God, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. See, this is amazing confidence shown by David that he can bring his raw, real feelings before God, knowing who he is, confident that even as he seems silent in the present, this is the God who is faithful and will act. But friends, much as Psalm 22 is a wonderful model of prayer, it's not actually about us. It's about Jesus. Uh, He is the one man who made this prayer his own. And praying it far more profoundly than even David, who originally wrote it. Please uh, keep your finger in Psalm 22 and, and flick with me to the second reading that we had from Matthew chapter 27. That was Matthew's account of Jesus' final hours before his death on the cross. We picked the story up as Jesus has been arrested, taken before Pilate, the local Roman ruler. And then we get a picture of Jesus living out Psalm 22. And if we're a little bit cautious about trying to join those dots too closely, well, Jesus does it for us when he hangs on the cross and he quotes the opening line of Psalm 22 word for word, as we read in verse 45 of Matthew chapter 27. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? See, these are the words of Jesus on the cross as he takes Psalm 22 and he owns it. He makes it his own and in doing so, he actually, he helps us to understand Psalm 22 better, but he also helps us to understand the significance of what is happening for him on the cross at that time as he explains it in the words of the psalm. Look briefly with me, cast your eyes over Matthew 27 and see how Matthew highlights Jesus fulfilling this prayer. You see, throughout this, uh, throughout this account, Jesus is surrounded by mockers. There's, there's the Roman soldiers, the rebels on the crosses next to him, the passers-by, even the religious leaders, just as David described himself being surrounded by mockers, scorning him. Matthew records in verse 35 that the soldiers divided Jesus' clothing by lot, just as David had described it. In Psalm 22, verse 18. Even the very words of the religious leaders in verse 43 of Matthew 27, the ones who should have known the character of God most clearly, their mocking and insults are almost a mirror image of what we read in Psalm 22. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. And David? in his technicolour imagery, had painted a picture of his enemies piercing his hands and his feet, a picture that he probably had no idea how the Messiah, Jesus Christ, God's ultimate king, would actually make that image flesh and blood as he hung on the cross, his nails, at nails through his hands and his feet a thousand years later. My God, my God, Jesus quotes this psalm. Why have you forsaken me? You see, in making this prayer his own as he hung on the cross, Jesus teaches us that he knows our suffering, the chaos of this life. In fact, he knows it better than we ever will. 
Because Jesus said these words as the one whom God has truly deserted. But more than that, the one who is God, who comes to us to take upon himself the justice that we deserve. He alone is the one who has experienced absolute unity with the Father. And now on our behalf, because of my sin and yours, he prays, why have you forsaken me? This is actually what the celebration of Christmas is all about. We sing wonderful carols, we give gifts, we celebrate, we eat a brilliant food. But in it all, at the heart of it all, we celebrate that Jesus came to do this. He came that he might take upon himself the punishment that we deserved. Jesus chose this path to show us the way. Jesus chose death so that he might give us life. So what David described in Psalm 22, feeling totally abandoned. What each of us at at different points in our life might have some sense of. For Jesus, it was the horrific, excruciating reality that on the cross he was forsaken by God and he took upon himself the sin of the world and bore the wrath of the holy and righteous God whose presence will bear no sin. And so in Psalm 22, we have a wonderful model of prayer, but we pray it as Christians, invited to to bring our emotions to God, raw and real and honest about how we are feeling, but praying it, looking at the cross. Because that is what fully reveals who God is when we are in the midst of our suffering, feeling like he is silent, feeling like he is not acting, We look to the cross and that is what informs our knowledge of God. So in the midst of our hardship, we look to the cross and we know that our Saviour Jesus has gone before us and he knows our weaknesses, he sympathises with our sufferings. We look to the cross and we know that whatever our present hardship, God has indeed come near. He is not far. He is so near that Jesus stood in for us under the punishment of God. In the midst of our hardship, we look back at the cross and we know that actually through the cross, God wasn't just near once, but he promises to be near always. As through the cross, our lives are hidden with Christ and he comes so close that he even dwells in us by his spirit, even in the midst of the heartache. Friends, Psalm 22 is a wonderful model of prayer for us this coming year. It's a wonderful reflection for us as we just step out of the celebrations of Christmas, remembering that this is what Jesus came for. And I pray that this year ahead, there would be no plastic surgery prayers in Victor Harbour as we pour out our hearts before our God, confident in who he is, utterly convinced that he has acted and he is near. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you 
that you invite us to cry out to you from the depths of our hearts, laying aside our pretensions that we've got everything sorted out and instead depending on you. Thank you that you know our sufferings and trials and temptations. Thank you that Jesus sympathises with our weakness. Thank you that in him you have already answered the cry of our hearts for you to be near us. Thank you for the forgiveness Jesus won for us on the cross that we might live with you, even live with you in our hearts. And this, as this new year approaches, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to be real about our feelings, but to hold them up to the light of your grace to us in Jesus. That our prayers might be raw and real and firmly grounded in the faith that you give us through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.